The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Macia with The Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to The Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about The Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area, people who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn, and his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte Office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. I'm Steve Dunn. I am joined today by Tanya Jamison, Director, Civic Engagement for Leading on Opportunity, a part of Foundation for the Carolinas, which works to improve economic mobility for all. Welcome, Tanya. Hey, thank you. So excited to be here. I hear the phrase economic mobility, and I think I know what it means, right. uh, but sometimes it's dangerous to assume. And so uh, from somebody who works in the space all the time, I'd love to know, how do you conceive of economic mobility and why is it important? Yeah, we, we, the way we define it is that it's one of generation's ability to get ahead of the next generation. So your children's ability to do better than their parents did is economic mobility and the opportunity for economic mobility. And so to be able to move up in your income and just, you know, accessibility and what you're able to do in life. So it's really the children being able to do better than their parents and each generation successfully doing better than the previous generation. And it it matters in Charlotte, right? Charlotte's got a bit of a history. Yeah. And a yeah. record with this, right? Right. Well, yeah, we do. So back in 2014, Raj Chetty came and, well, he didn't come, but Raj Chetty released a national study called the Land of Opportunity Study. And it ranked cities based on economic mobility, ranked 50 cities, and Charlotte came in last. And for Charlotte, it was just really, for, for some in Charlotte, I'll say, it was really a rude awakening to what others, though, others who'd been working in the space knew all along, which is that the Charlotte was becoming a tale of two cities. I mean, this study came out at a time when Charlotte was booming, right? We were feeling ourselves. The, the Panthers had made the NFC Championship. We had skyscrapers just reaching toward the skies. And so... The city was growing, but at the same time, there was an entire generation, entire set of people who were not able to take advantage of the city's growing prosperity. And the Chetty study basically showed, although it was looking at data from the 80s that um, the study looked at, but it showed, I mean, we could see it right here in Charlotte already at that point in 2014 that we had come become a tale of two cities, those who were able to benefit from the city's growing prosperity and those who were just left behind. It's a big part of the American dream, isn't it? The idea that if you work hard and do the right things, that anybody can make it in this land, right? It it feels like it's an important part of the story that we tell ourselves, all of us, not from whatever walk of life you come from, whatever your political persuasion is. A lot of people believe that to be true and certainly want to believe that it's true. And if it's not true, then there's some conclusions that follow from that, right? And I gather that the the results of this study kind of opened some eyes to the fact that maybe things aren't as we thought they were, and it certainly opened some eyes to the need to do something about it. And that's where leading on opportunity came from, right? Right, exactly. And it's not even so much that it just opened the eyes uh, for people, but 
what the study really did in the following Opportunity Task Force report that the uh, Leading on Opportunity organization put out was it that it was not for lack of trying that people weren't able to take advantage of those of that economic opportunity, but it was a it was basically systemic with the barriers that were put in place, whether it was business practices, whether it was government policies, but there were things that have prevented people from being able to take advantage and really build on or create an American dream for themselves. How long have you been there and what do you do every day? So I've been with Leading Opportunity now for two years, celebrating my second anniversary back in July. And my role is, it's called Director of Civic Advancement, but my role is really around policy and community engagement. And so really the way that I approach my work is that, as I said before, policies have been put in place over decades that have created a disparity that we see. And it's going to take decades to undo that disparity. But one of the things is that we have to identify what are the policies that have been put in place. So my goal is to work with the community, people who are on the ground dealing with this every day to find out what are the barriers that they face, what policies can address those barriers, and then elevate those barriers to get actually our business community to help advocate behind trying to change those barriers, change those policies that are preventing people from getting ahead. What are you seeing out there that's working? And what are you seeing out there that really needs to be working better? Um, right now, what I'm seeing out there that's working, there's really momentum we have here in Charlotte. And I, and I talk about it all the time. People think I'm kind of hokey sometimes because I'm really excited about the momentum we have here in Charlotte. The, the study came out now. It's been a little less than maybe 10 years ago that the study actually originally came out. The Land of Opportunity study came out. And Charlotte is still committed to improving those outcomes, to improving economic mobility. And that's exciting. It's an exciting time when you see our, you know, we've got our city council, we have our county commission, everyone, at the, we have the CELC, which is the Charlotte Executive Leadership Council, and everyone's still focused on improving economic mobility. So whether you look at what the city's doing with the corridors or what you look at what the uh, county's doing with their community resource centers, there's this focus and this in this buzz to really improve outcomes here in Charlotte and improve people's lives. And so that's that's exciting to be a part of that, to see that the continued focus on it and that we're not taking our foot off the gas. The areas that need to be improved, though, is we really do need to lean into policy because, granted, we are a fortunately to be in a city that has wealth, that has corporate wealth, but money can't fix all of these things. So in addition to the financial investments, and programmatic investments that we need to address this economic mobility divide that we have, we also need policy changes too. And so we need everyone lifting up their voices and especially the more powerful advocates that we have in the business community and the more powerful advocates that we have on a, with our elected officials to really be lifting up the policy changes that we need in order to really improve economic mobility for years down the road and for generations to come. You got a pet policy project? You got something in particular that yeah. every, everybody's tired of hearing you talk about? Uh, yeah, that? yeah. They, they, they get tired. A couple of things. So child care, increasing families' access and the affordability of child care, paying our, our child care providers livable wages, right? Because we're, we're only paying them enough. Basically, you could be you, you make more money working at Target than being a child care provider. And that's, in, that's insane. Uh, so child care is definitely one of them. And still keeping the focus on affordable housing, abundant housing, and putting policies in place and investments in place that allow for more abundant housing. You got a lot going on. You always have had a lot going on. Yeah. You've been a very busy person for a long time and yeah, you've yeah. seen Charlotte change for a long time. Uh, you are well known to many of the listeners of the podcast. Uh, over many years, you began your career in Charlotte 
in as a reporter for the Charlotte Observer, I think starting in 1994. Is that yeah, correct. Was? Yeah. was that your first job out of college? Yeah, look, man, I tell people all the time, right? So I, I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, and it's a planned community outside of between Baltimore and D.C. So I tell people I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, but I adulted in Charlotte. So I thoroughly enjoyed becoming an adult, becoming a more responsible citizen right here in Charlotte. But it was my first job out of after I graduated from the University of Alabama. Roll Tide, baby, we're in the playoffs. Sorry, I had to have that moment. Oh, that's a bit much. Tanya, <laughs> Tanya Jameson, if you didn't already know it, big Alabama fan. But you went to, you went to college in Alabama, and yeah. you come to Charlotte, you start working for the Observer, and you, you see Charlotte through an interesting lens at an interesting time. Uh, so you, you wrote about a lot over the years, but one of the beats that you had was Charlotte's nightlife and your your column paid to party, which is one of the best column names I think I've ever seen. Well, thank but you. At, but at the same time, from from 1994 to 2009, you're witnessing a lot of change in Charlotte, particularly through the lens of uh, the city's social life, while simultaneously you're witnessing a real sea change in the media business and the advent and the um, of the internet and the popularization, the mainstreaming of the internet. And so, and there you were right in the middle of it the whole time while the city's changing, the media is changing and you as a person are beginning to be an adult. Right. right. And so there's a lot there. We could be, we could talk about all of it for a lot longer than we have today, but I just wonder what comes to mind as sort of your, your takeaways from all that madness. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was a great time covering paid to party and it gave me the kind of beat that allowed me to be able to take advantage of the mainstreaming, as you say, of the internet, because it, it was a brand new beat. No one had done a nightlife column, and nightlife wasn't something that's necessarily controversial, except for some of the things I did, but it's not necessarily controversial, so there's not the same kind of eyes on it that you would see if you're covering school board or if you're covering politics. And so doing a nightlife column, I had the freedom and flexibility to really test out and play with the different tools that were available as the internet was becoming more widely mainstream. So we had a podcast. I started the, the paid to party picks. And so they, they just gave me a little camera. This was before camera phones were really as prevalent. So they just gave me a little camera and they're like, we want to see pictures of the stuff that you're seeing out there. And so we started, I started pictures with that. I started the blog. And so I was just really able to take advantage. We, we launched Facebook and Twitter came out of paid to party as well for us at the Observer. And so it was really a chance to just test out some of the all of the tools that were becoming available with the mainstream of the Internet. And then, as you've seen now, the papers take it to a whole other level with the various newsletters they put out and, and how they utilize it now. But it was it was just an exciting time to be doing that work. You briefly alluded to the subject of controversy. Uh, controversy is a context-dependent phenomenon, right? That's like, it true. depends on what we're That's talking right. about and where we are at the time. Uh, I don't know exactly what you were referring to, but you have told a story in the past about taking a class in how to talk about sex or how to write about sex, right? <laughs> did, and then right. and then coming back and, and going to the observer and saying, hey, I should do a column about the challenge of writing about sex. And I gathered that there was some some resistance or some pushback or you had a, a yeah. little bit of a hard time getting it published. What was yeah. that? I, I mean, that was so long ago, but I went it was a Pew. It was a Pew workshop, which is a very reputable organization that helps train journalists. And so they did. They had a week long workshop on how can the media write more intelligently about, about sex. And so I came back wanting to write a, a column about it. And I just remember it being wordsmith to death. And, and I mean, it finally ran, but 
I think it was even more sanitized, but it just illustrated the challenge, just even writing a column about the challenges of writing a column about sex and just how the media was just so, at that time, I'll say, The Observer, your more mainstream traditional media was still just hinky about talking about sex and that, you know, we, we've often portrayed it in the media as like, it's this bad thing. It's a, a taboo thing to even talk about, write about sex. So when, when, you're, when we're writing about sex, it tended to be back then at least that it's always, it's either about issues like diseases that are going around or this idea of promiscuity. And so it was always more portrayed in a negative sense if we even wrote about sex in the first place in the media. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about, right? There's there's so much psychology wrapped up in it and so many cultural mores and values right. that are kind of wrapped up in it that that are taboo subjects. And on the one hand, if you're trying to address it at all, you run the risk of being perceived as like salacious or sensationalistic. And certainly there's a market for that, right? Like you right. get a lot of eyeballs on yeah, your stuff by yeah. being exactly that way. And so I imagine it presents quite a challenge to address a topic that's front of mind for everybody all the time on some level, mm-hmm. but yet goes completely unspoken. And I wonder, I, don't, I just wonder if pulling on those threads is just sort of part of what you do all the time and have always done. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to write about topics that in people that we didn't traditionally see portrayed in the media. And so I wanted to write about young people and students. I, I recall at a time that when we were writing about young people, the paper, it was typically, it was still, they were a problem. They were, whether it's they're acting out in school or it's their test scores or it's crime related, but you never just saw just human interest. You didn't really see human interest stories a lot of times about young people and the lives that they were living. And so I, so I wanted to write about young people in the work that we did. I wanted to write about black people in the work that we did at the observer too, because you know, you, you know how the media has traditionally portrayed African-Americans. And so I wanted to write different stories and tell different stories about Black folks who were doing good things in the community that you just ne- didn't necessarily hear about. Kind of like your podcast that you were doing before, too. It's just like highlighting these stories that people don't know is out there and just changing the narrative of how we see people, other people. How did it go? I mean, how are, how are you perceived? Because uh, I, I encountered your work as a reader. And we were young then. You and I are both. We're, we're around the same age. And so I, you're, you're in your 20s and 30s. And I was in my 20s and mm-hmm. 30s reading your right. stuff. And, you know, it, it was... My recollection of it was that it was cool to just to have this fuller picture appear in the local media, just to have right. to have this viewpoint represented at all, right? But yeah. I can imagine. I, I think anytime you have a situation like that, there's going to be people who aren't too crazy about it. Like, did you get pushback from from the readership? It, well, I don't know if you recall, but like you, at one point, you could Google my name, and the first thing that came up was "I hate Tanya Jameson" website. There was. There was <laughs> <laughs> that, that's some measure of success, yeah, right? I mean, like, that's a, how you know you yeah, really made a, it. Some, yeah, somebody created a website like, I hate Tanya Jameson. So, um, so why, why did that person hate Tanya Jameson? I, I didn't read all the blogs, but they didn't like what I was writing about. They didn't like that. Maybe they just didn't like the fact that, that we had a nightlife, nightlife column in the first place, but they didn't like Tanya Jameson. So so I had I definitely had detractors. And one of the things that the, that the uh, internet did was gave them a bigger platform to show their displeasure about me at at the paper but one of my favorite stories for for detractors is um i wrote a column once about it was right after 9 11 about quilters and how quilters were making quilts to you know address the grieving around 9 11 
I wrote a disparaging column. Like, that's not how we tackle this problem. And lo and behold, though, I, I did not know that our editor at the time, Jenny Buckner, was a quilter. And so well, you also probably <laughs> didn't know about the whole quilting community. You may not I have did been, not know. You, you did not I, have I did your not finger know. on the pulse. I did not. Of yeah, they, quilting nationwide. They came hard. Yeah. yeah, they came after me hard. And so they sent a quilt, and they sent me a quilt to the paper. And Jenny, that's a pretty good response, actually. Yeah, Jenny called me into her office. She's like, "I want you to write a, a, a column about this, and I want you to find a good home for this quilt." And so I ended up taking it to a shelter in the Plaza Maywood area and writing about the whole thing, giving the quilt to them and what the shelter did, et cetera. And so, so yeah, along the way, I burned various bridges as I was growing into the role and finding my voice, for sure. Well, we, yeah, we, we, this is life, right? right and yeah. as, as life has gone on, your, your work has, simply by being honest and by being yourself, you're going to be perceived to some people, by some people, as, as political but now you're expressly political, right? You are you are involved mostly in local politics. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, mostly and, mostly local politics. And it's you're working as a as a campaign consultant, campaign manager. I was so prior to joining Leading on Opportunity, I ran political campaigns, and so my first campaign I've written about it before too was was Larkin Eggleston, who was on the city council representing District One. And so after I I finished with Paid to Party, one of my editors who actually recruited me to come to the Observer. Fanny called me in her office one day. She's like, you know, I didn't really bring you to Charlotte to write about nightlife and party all the time. So I was like, that's a good point. So I need to figure out what I want to do next. And so I started a, a column targeting our generation. We were the MTV generation. So we were the cool kids at the time. And so I wanted to write a column that was more a digital column. And so I started That's What's Up then to cover the uh, uh, Obama's election. And so at that time, Larkin was writing for Elevate. And so we were... We used to run the streets together all the time. And so he said he wanted to run to run for office. And so I was like, well, you, I want you to join some boards and I want you to take Civics 101 and I want you to, to you know, really get a cause that you want to run for. And I said, and I'll learn how to run elections at, while you do that. And then 10 years later, he'd done the things, I'd done the things. And so I ran his campaign and he unseated Patsy Kinsey. And then after I, after we beat her, then I connected with Spencer, the who was running for DA, he was an assistant DA at the time, an acting DA at the time. And then after that, the doors just opened. And so I did politics for about, I would say probably like five years just running local campaigns. I want to talk about what it means to do politics because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people in the world who don't even pay attention to politics. And, right. and then there's a smaller subset of people who are interested in politics and follow politics. And a lot of that uh, just gets boiled down to tribalism, national issues, just sort of self-identification, right. stuff like that. But then there's the actual work of politics, the actual reality on the street of politics. And that's a completely different thing that I think is largely invisible. Like when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of campaign work. And I'm curious what you think are the, the key aspects of it. Like what are the parts of what's the most important thing when you're doing a city council campaign, which is uniquely local. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, and, and then also how do you learn to do it when when you take 10 years to figure out how to help Larkin Eggleston? Yeah. How do you figure it out? Yeah, I well, I did. It was an organization. There was one called Lillian's List Training. So I, I did that one. That was under. So Lillian's List is the North Carolina version of Emily's List. So it's the smaller version. Then I did the uh, Institute of Political Leadership. So any kind of political trainings that I could do, I, I did them all. And then I volunteered on Vi's first city council at large campaign to do comms for her. 
And she had a great campaign manager named Mike Evans, and he'd run his wife's campaign. She was a judge at the time. And so he'd run her campaigns. And so I really just basically kind of sat at Mike's knee, learning how to run the real nuts and bolts of how to put what I'd learned in the trainings in action on the ground. And so that's really how I got my chops in running campaigns. Was and what does it entail? What do you actually do? It's honestly, running a campaign is project management but it's also understanding how to work with people and building a team. So like when I created my website for campaigns, I called myself the, the Nick Saban of campaigns because Nick Saban, the coach of Alabama, he has a system and he knows how to build a team. So you plug and play in with his system and, and he wins consistently. And so that's what I'd been able to do as a campaign manager is put the system in place and then find the people necessary, depending on the candidate that I was working with, to be able to win. And that's what we were able to do. What are, who are the best candidates? Like, what does it take to be a good candidate? Because you, I, I can't help but notice that you're not, you're not the candidate. You're, you haven't no. run, you haven't run yet, right? No, no, I'm not, I'm not the candidate. And I only worked with candidates that I, that I supported, that I would vote for. I wanted to see an office who I knew their heart was in it for the right reasons. And I also tended to, as I, I look back over that, that time in my life, I also tended to work with candidates who had a propensity to collaborate and work across the aisles who weren't single issue focused and who understand the broader, understood the broader picture of what it takes to really make an impact in the community. You are a person who, uh, doesn't just think about stuff and wish that the world were a certain way. You are the type of person who gets involved and takes action. And in addition to all of the things that we've talked about already, you're also a member of the Citizens Review Board, which hears complaints regarding allegations of misconduct by police officers. You like motorcycles, and so you don't just like motorcycles. You are a motorcycle instructor right. uh, for motor the Motorcycle Safety Foundation, and this in many other ways. Uh, you're somebody who, who just turns your preferences and your beliefs in, into action in the world. And I wonder where that came from. That would definitely come from just my upbringing and, and my parents providing a home and a, a life for us that allowed us to do that and letting us go and do and try and to be as engaged or just try whatever it is that we wanted to do. So my parents, there's some people who would think sports are the worst, but when I was really young, my parents had tried to get me to do ballet, which was hilarious, and I was awful at it, and I was like, I can't wear a tutu, so, and they tried to do gymnastics, and that was dumb, too, because I didn't like a leotard. It was dumb for me. I know there are really, really great gymnasts out there, but for me, it was not my style, and so then they put me in soccer, and I'd been playing basketball since I was a little kid, and so they, they let us try whatever it is that we wanted to try, and they made us, they wanted us to stay involved. The rule was, like, if you're in the house, you're either doing schoolwork that they're going to create for you or you're doing housework and so I looked for all the opportunities to be outside the house and so they let us run free and and we had a great time doing it and figuring life out. As you look back now as someone who is acclaimed for being over 40 you're, you're <laughs> part of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 over 40 right. but I wonder with the perspective that you have and the experience that you've gained uh, over the years uh, what you would say to young Tanya Jamison in 1994 coming to Charlotte and starting out, like what is it that you wish you knew then? That you don't know as much as you thought you knew then. You thought you knew it all? 
Of course. Yeah. I, I I thought I knew it all. I thought my body was invincible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. Well, how do you feel about Charlotte? You're here. You're still here. You, you've been here a long time and you choose to still be here. And yeah. Oh, yeah. so what, what do you think of Charlotte? Where are we headed? And you know, what does the future look like for this town? I tell people all the time that I love Charlotte. I won't leave Charlotte because Charlotte's the kind of city where you can move here and make a name for yourself. If you have the determination and drive, you can make a name and you can make an imprint in Charlotte and, and, and get your name out there relatively easily compared to older established cities like a Baltimore, D.C., et cetera. And so I, I love Charlotte and I, and I love the spirit that Charlotte has of always trying and striving to do better and, so, and, and to be a better city. So I, I'm not leaving Charlotte. And where do I think we're going? I think, I think we're going in the right direction, especially when it comes to economic mobility. It's just that we have to stay focused on improving lives. And if we can maintain that focus and be willing to do the work that's necessary, then we'll see that gap that we were so embarrassed about begin to shrink. And that's what I'm most looking forward to is I don't know if I'll be alive, but at least seeing the indicators that show how we're doing on economic mobility begin to go in the right direction. And we're seeing some of that now, but really being able to see it in people's lives and people feel it too, not just what the data says, but people that you talk to feel it as well. Let's leave it there. Tanya Jamison on the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you for hosting me. This was a great conversation. That's it for today. The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at ledger40over40.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Queen City